If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible this morning, uh, we're going to flip through a lot of pages of Scripture, perhaps more than we ordinarily would. If you're in the celebration service, you'll notice that there is a Bible in the rack in front of you. And we're going to begin on page 858. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Our goal is to hit every verse before Easter 2022. But today, we're going to take a little break and, as I said earlier, just spend the hour focusing on Christ. There is nothing in the world more important than Jesus and than knowing who Jesus really is. It's one of those things that if we get this wrong, if we get everything in life right, but we get this one thing wrong, then we will spend an eternity separated from God and his love. But if we could get this one thing right, this would be the beginning to getting everything else right, it all starts with Jesus. When we turn to Matthew chapter five, uh, the Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the story of Christ, we come to a sermon that we traditionally call in church the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon we have of Jesus. It's likely just an outline. You could read through it in just a few minutes. It covers a ton of different topics and tells us something of what it means to live the Christian life. And we're going to see some of that this morning. But I want you to know as we're looking at these instructions for living the Christian life, that there really is something a great deal more to it than that. You see, the the gospel of Jesus Christ is it's not just a list of rules or even helpful hints for living a quality life. This is the story about how people who are separated from God because of their sins can be forgiven and can have a right relationship with him adopted into the family of God. And so even when we read this sermon and we notice all of these ethical instructions, what we see beneath the surface is the story of Jesus. And I'm afraid oftentimes when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we get so caught up in the do this and do that, things that are very important, but we miss the beauty of the message, the story of Jesus. And that's what I hope we'll see today. So let's let's start just by taking a tour uh, through the sermon. We'll start in Matthew 5 verse 1. The Bible says when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then in verse 2, he began to teach them saying, and the sermon begins. Uh, If you choose to go to Israel with us this next July, this is one of the places that we'll go. I can uh, see it in my mind. It's a yeah, it's, a, it's a mountain, but, but really more of a hill. And Jesus would have stood on top of this hill, not far from the Sea of Galilee. And it's just a, 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 a subtle hill. It goes down. It, it definitely goes down, but it's not a steep hill. And as the, 
as the Bible describes these people who had come to hear Jesus, probably thousands of people would have gathered on this hill and Jesus would have given them these words. The Bible says that Jesus sat down. That might surprise you. Uh, ordinarily when we teach or preach, we stand. That's uh, the position of authority in our culture. But in, in Christ's culture, if you were going to speak with authority, you would sit down. And so Jesus looks out across the crowds and he sits down and everyone would have leaned forward to hear what he had to say. So let's walk through some of this. If you look down to verse 21, and I'm just going to point out some of the highlights, if you will, of the sermon. Verse 21, he says, you who have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And so here this is interesting. Jesus says it's not just the actions that would make a person guilty of sin, but it's even the thoughts, it's even the attitude that we could have. He says it's not just murder that's wrong, but it's anger that's wrong. Now that's important because you see here that Jesus' understanding of sin included actions and it included attitudes. Attitudes. We'll see more of that in a moment. In fact, if you look down to verse 28, he's met, he says, but, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so this is the same thing, just uh, you know, in, in a different area of life. He says it's not just your actions, it's even your thoughts, your longings that, that would count as, as sin. Let's look maybe down to verse 43. Chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what people have been taught. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he turns this whole ethic on its head. He says, you don't just love people that love you back, but you should love every person, every person. Do you see how following Christ is a matter of the hearts and how difficult a matter it could be? And then he tells us in the next few verses that this is what God the Father has done for us. Look at the next verse, verse 45. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves everybody, right? God doesn't just love those people who follow him. God loves and wants to be a blessing and to show his power and his kindness to every person. So we should have the same attitude as that of Christ. We should love all people. And then he gets very pointed in the next couple of verses. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Don't even evil people love people who love them back? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You don't have to have the love of Christ to love people who are kind to you. But then notice he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's interesting, and we're, we're building on something here. Notice what he says the standard is. The standard is perfection. What does God ask of us? What does God expect of us? 
God says we must be perfect. We must be perfect in our actions. We must be perfect in our attitudes. And we must be perfect even in loving people who don't choose to love us back. So this is a pretty, a pretty powerful message. It would have been a, uh, an upsetting message, I think, to many people who would have heard it. But he goes on in chapter 6 to cover some additional topics. Verse 9 You see chapter 6, verse 9, this is the beginning of the model prayer where Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, holy be your name. And so you're familiar with that. That's that's right in the middle of this this sermon. And then look down to chapter 6, verse 19. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus, again, he's pushing past our actions to our attitudes and now even the longings of our heart. Our heart, our desire ought to be, ought to be for the Lord. If you look down to verse 25, I won't read those verses, but there's a long paragraph there all about how to overcome anxiety. You struggle with anxiety, this is uh, best wisdom that that you'll ever read. Now look to chapter seven, verse 24. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine uh, and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Jesus is ending with an illustration. He says, imagine a man builds his house, and when he does, he is careful to lay down a strong foundation. Verse 25 says, Then rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house, yet it did not collapse, because its foundation was on the rock. He says, if you listen to these words and you do what Christ says do, you are building your life upon the rock, which is Christ, and it will stand even in the fiercest storms. And then look at verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed and it collapsed with a great crash. If we ignore the words, the commands of Christ, if we ignore what the scripture says about who Christ is and how we should respond to that, And then our lives, no matter how fancy they may be, no matter how strong they may seem, when there is no storm, will ultimately fail when the winds blow. And so this sermon covers so much. But I told you that there's more here than uh, than just this ethical lesson. This is a sermon ultimately about who Jesus is. And so I want to go back through the sermon, and I want to show you some things that uh, maybe don't make the headlines as often, uh, but I think show us the real intent of what Christ is saying. I want to show you from this sermon, who is Christ? And so a simple outline, we're going to begin, number one, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So we're still in Matthew, turn to chapter 5, back where we began, and I want to read to you verse 17. 
Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill. Here's what Jesus is saying. I didn't come to change God's word. I came to fulfill God's word. I think sometimes when people read the Old Testament and they see how the nation of Israel rejected God and then they turn to the New Testament and Jesus is on the scene, they think that Jesus is God's do-over. They think everything came unraveled in the Old Testament. And so starting with Jesus, God's taking a different approach, going in a different direction. He has a different way to bring salvation to his people. But that's not the case. What we have to understand in the Bible is that God had a plan from eternity past. That, that before there was a beginning, there was God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And God had a plan. God had a plan to create man. God had a plan to give man the freedom to choose to love and worship him. And then God had a plan with Jesus Christ to provide a way of salvation and forgiveness when those people that he created in his image chose the wrong way. This is not God's plan B. This is God's plan A. And so Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He is here. His ministry fulfills everything we read about in the Old Testament. And I want to take you through some of that. So if we were to turn, and you can, but I'm going to read some verses to you as we skip around a little bit. If you were to turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in chapter 3 you find that Adam and Eve have sinned. God has created man. He has created man and woman in his image. He has given them the option to choose to worship him or to choose not to worship him. And they have chosen the wrong path. So they've sinned. And God comes into the garden. There's this confrontation between Adam and Eve and God. And it's interesting some of the things that happen. The first one we read about in chapter 3, verse 15, listen to this verse. I will put, these are the words of God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's a little bit of a mystery, right? It's hard to understand exactly what that means. But it's talking about the offspring of Adam and Eve. Not, not the next people who were born, but many generations later, there will come someone from Adam and Eve, at least partially from Adam and Eve. The Bible gives us more information as it goes on. But there will be one who will come who will destroy the works of Satan and who will provide forgiveness for God's people and it's promised here all the way back in the first pages of the book of Genesis. And then God does something that uh, might not seem crazy unusual to you but it certainly would have to Adam and Eve. They had never seen death. Uh, they had never seen a, an animal die. They had never imagined that that life might end. But the Bible says in Genesis 3.21 that the Lord, uh, because Adam and Eve were guilty of sin, they were filled with shame. They had tried to cover themselves with leaves just because of the shame that they felt. And so it says in chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. God slaughtered an animal and skinned it. They'd never seen anything like that. It must have been grotesque. It must have been discomforting. It must have been messy. 
God skins this animal and makes them a covering. And in just a tiny little way, God is teaching them that when there is sin, sin brings death. And the only covering is the covering of blood, ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ. And they certainly wouldn't have understood all of that then, but they were beginning to understand because God was beginning to unveil his plan that he had from eternity past for how to save his people. And then we see this, well, throughout the Old Testament. If we were to fast forward a dozen chapters, uh, Genesis chapter 12, we see a promise made to Abraham. Let me read. It says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He's talking about Abraham, the children of Abraham. That's the nation of Israel. He says, I will form a nation. It'll be a great nation. It'll persist through the generations. He says, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all of the earth will be blessed by that nation, by the fruit of that nation. Who's the fruit of that nation? What well, Jesus is the one. See, that's just a, it's just another, it's another indicator. It's another revelation as, as God is, is preparing them for his ultimate plan all the way from the beginning to send Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And then it's interesting, just uh, two or three chapters later, Abraham was was dealing with the Lord. The Lord had made some promises. They seemed to be impossible promises. But it says in verse 6 of Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord. He had faith in God. God told him something that would have been nearly impossible to believe. But, but Abraham chose to believe in God. It says Abraham believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved, to use the word we use today. How was Abraham made right with God? He believed, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Here we see the very beginning of the faith that God calls us to have in Christ. Here's the point of all of this. This is not something new. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. This has been God's plan from the very beginning before the beginning that Jesus would come pay the penalty for our sin. We see it all the way through the law. We see it in the sacrifices. We see it in the prophets. Uh, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. And so the Jews for all of those years waited. They waited for the Messiah to come. And when Jesus finally came, this is my favorite part of the Christmas story. There was, a, there was a man named Simeon, and he was, he so anticipated that the Messiah would come, he woke up every day and he prayed, is today the day the Messiah will come? And it was one day in Simeon's life, and the Lord let him see the baby Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 2, 29, now master, this is what Simeon said when he finally saw Jesus. He says, now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. 
You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for the Gentiles and a glory to the people of Israel. He said, we have waited as a people all our lives for the history of the world. We have waited. And now Jesus is, is revealed. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but Jesus came to fulfill it. And I, I think perhaps the best, the best place you can see this in, in the New Testament is in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Let me read just a few verses. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, in the Gospel of John, the word, word, referred to Christ. And it tells us that very plainly down John 1:14 and some other places. And so when you hear word, think Christ. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So in the beginning, before anything else, in the very beginning, Jesus was already there right? He wasn't created. Jesus is a part of the Godhead. He, he is a part of God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. That's the Testament of scripture from beginning to end. And so in the beginning, Jesus was already there. He was already there. It says that Jesus was with God. That means there's some distinction between the Father and the Son. Jesus was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was God. It's hard to understand, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we call the Trinity. Jesus is God. The Father is God. They're distinct, but the same essence. And even in the beginning, that was already true. It says in the next verse, he was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that was created. Jesus, it said of him, in him was life and that life was the light of men and that light shines into darkness and yet the darkness did not over, overcome it. The Bible says that Jesus did not come to abolish the word, but he came to fulfill it. This was God's plan from the beginning. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to show it to you in one more place in the Bible, and then we'll keep moving. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets about the different times and the different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, his one and only son. And God has appointed him, the son, heir of all things, and he has made the universe through him. The son, listen to this, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his power. I think about the son, S-U-N, son, 93 million miles away, and so that's the sun. Now we don't experience the sun, we experience the radiance of the sun, right? The light that comes to us from the sun. And so here it's using an analogy, and and and, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but but the father is as 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 he is the he is the sun, S-U-N, the sun, S-O-N, is the radiance that we enjoy and that we experience. Christ, the Bible tells us, is unique. He is the one and only expression of the Father. It says that he has come for our purification. It says that right there in verse 3. And that he has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is today, having accomplished everything necessary 
for the forgiveness of our sins. Now all that to say, and I'm repeating myself, but Jesus, we want to lift high his name. He is the one and only son of God. He is a part of the triune God. And that has been the testimony from Jesus and the apostles from the very beginning. That is the foundation of our faith. And it is something that is woven so into the fabric of scripture that you can't just leave out a verse here or there and come to any other conclusion that still has any intellectual integrity to it. This isn't just a verse here or a verse there. This is the message of God's word. And so we celebrate Christ. So that's number one we see here in this sermon. Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, I want you to see that Jesus is the standard. He is the standard. So I, I want to look in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, so think sinlessness, your goodness, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into heaven. Now think about that. He says, unless you are better than the scribes and the Pharisees at keeping the law, at keeping the rules, at performing this, the religious rituals, unless you're better than they are, then you could never inherit the kingdom of God. What is he talking about? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were legendary for their rule keeping. Uh, you'd love to live next door to a scribe or a Pharisee. He'd cut his grass every day. You know, he would, he would take care of things. He would always pay his bills. He would always be polite and kind to you on the street. The, the Pharisee, the scribe, always it seemed he kept the rules. Uh, Jesus uh, said one time of the scribes and the Pharisees that they were so careful to keep the rules and they were told to tithe, to give a tenth of everything they had. And so Jesus said that when they would when they would harvest dill or cumin, I mean spices, they would be careful to count out all the little pieces to make sure somehow they had given one-tenth of that to the Lord and not kept one piece of dill more than they were supposed to. I mean, these were people who were very good at keeping the rules. Yet Jesus says here that unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness then you could never inherit the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees represented the best of human attempts, of human effort to be right with God. And Jesus says they failed. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. There is no amount of human effort, of trying harder, of doing better, of tightening down, of bucking up, there is no amount of human effort, rule keeping, or religious practices and ceremonies that'll be enough to please the Lord. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's, it's because, first of all, of the depth of our sin. And secondly, it's because of the righteous requirement of God. Let me show you those. The depth of our sin we too often think we're doing well simply because we've compared ourselves with other people that we at least perceive aren't doing as well as we are, right? 
And it's not hard to turn on the news and find somebody, you know, to go to work and find somebody to look down your street and find somebody whose life is more messed up than yours, right? And so we feel good about ourselves, but only because we've compared ourselves to other sinful, broken people. If we were to compare ourselves to the righteousness of God, we would all understand that we've that we come up short. The Bible says there is nothing righteous in us. And even the best things we could point to are corrupted by our selfishness and our, and our sinful motives. And so we, we, we think that we can earn God's favor because we don't understand the depth of our sin, but also because we don't understand the righteous requirement of God. Now he's he makes this clear here. We've already read chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. But I think sometimes we ignore that standard because we can't even imagine the standard of perfection. I think there's another place in the Bible that explains it in a way that's uh, maybe easier to understand. James chapter 2, verse 10. Let me just read this simple verse. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Now think of that. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, at, at first thought, he says, if you've broken even a little part of the law, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And you're thinking, no, that's not me. I've broken a little bit of the law. You know, I've, I've, rolled through a traffic light maybe or a stop sign, but, I, but I've not broken the whole law. I know people who've done terrible things. Well, we say that because we don't understand God's righteous requirement. God's requirement is not so much about keeping this rule and this rule and this rule. God's righteous requirement is about honoring God with everything that we are. And if we come up short, then we've come up short. I, um, I may have... Uh, shared this illustration with you recently, uh, or maybe this was on one of my Learn the Bible uh, videos. But if I, uh, if I make a commitment to be faithful to my wife, and I have, and, and I am faithful to her by not having an affair with this woman, and not having an affair with this woman and not having an affair with this woman and not having an affair with this woman and not having an affair with this other woman. And I don't have an affair with 99 different women, but I have an affair with one. I have not been 99% faithful to my wife, right? I have been what? Unfaithful to my wife. And so what we've got to understand is God's God's requirement, his righteous requirement, is not that we're obedient a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there, but that we're just obedient. And if we've not been obedient, then we've not been obedient. We're not 99% obedient. There's no such thing as 99% obedient. It's pass fail. We're either obedient or we're, or we're not. And so we see here, not only is Jesus the Messiah, but Jesus is the standard. He is the only one who's lived a perfect and sinless life. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet he is without sin. Jesus set the standard and nothing less than the standard satisfies the expectation of God. The next thing, very quickly, is Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the gate. If you look at chapter 7, verse 13, 
says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life, and few people find it. He's emphasizing here how few people are on the path to eternal life. Did you know that? I think we get the idea that everybody is going to heaven, that everybody's going to have this eternal life with God and avoid the, the separation from God and the love of God. But that's not what, not what Jesus says. He says there are few people who are on the path. Most people are on a different path that, that goes to a different place and has a different destination. So why are so many people deceived? If so many people are on the wrong path, why don't they recognize that they're on the wrong path? Well, I think, uh, I think there are three, three reasons, just quickly, and this is, this is a little bit of a repeat, so I'll go quickly. Uh, number one, they think they're on the right path because, they, because they're trying to follow the rules. I hear it all the time, Pastor, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder. And they're trying to follow the rules. And they think that being on the right path is about trying to follow the rules. The second thing is religious practices. We, we think we're on the right path because we go to some religious observance, that we, that we do some religious activity, that, that we're a part of some ceremony, and, and that gives us comfort when it sh perhaps shouldn't. And, and then finally, we, we believe that we're saved because God blesses sincerity. Have you ever heard that? That only, only thing God cares about is that we're sincere. You will never find that in Scripture. It's not sincerity. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. But people take comfort in their attempts to keep the rules, their religious practices, and in their sincerity. If you look down to verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21, let me read to you just a few more verses there. This is a, an illustration of that. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, who do the will of my Father. So he says there are people who are going to say, Lord, Lord. These are religious people, right? Religious people. It, it's only a religious person that's going to say, Lord, Lord. He says there are going to be some people in the end who are going to consider themselves religious, but they're going to find out that they were on the wrong path. Look at verse 22. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do miracles in your name? These people are going to, some of them be leaders in the church or in some, some other religious expression, uh, true or false, and they're going to point to these experiences they've had and say, well, surely that means I'm a child of God. Verse 23, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. See, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the standard. And Jesus is the gate. You, you see back, we read it a moment ago in verse 12. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, sometimes people ask me as a pastor, do I have to believe this to be a Christian? Do I have to believe that to be a Christian? And people have all kinds of interesting uh, suggestions of things that we might or might not believe. Can I tell you what it all boils down to? Jesus is the way to eternal life. And life is only through Jesus. Jesus, as he's presented in Scripture... As the one true living God, the Son of God for all eternity, God's one and only Son who died 
for our sins. And anything else, any other religious expression short of that, short of that, Jesus is the gate. And then finally, Jesus is the love of God. All that, this is what I want to, this is what I'm excited about showing you. If you look right at the end of the sermon, the last few verses of chapter 7, verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because his teaching, uh, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the scribes. And so when Jesus finished, thousands of people, can you imagine? He says, amen, go eat lunch or whatever. And all eyes are on Jesus. They have never heard anything like this. And then chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Everybody's looking. He's coming down the hillside, maybe walking toward the lake, the Sea of Galilee, they called it. And every eye is on him. What is this man who has just preached this radical love in action kind of message? What's he going to do? And then verse 2. Don't read ahead. Let me, let me read these to you one at a time. I want to build some suspense. He says in verse 2, right away a man with leprosy came. And knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you've got to understand that leprosy was the dreaded disease of their day. You didn't get anywhere near a person with leprosy. You think people will run from you in this COVID time if you cough too much. Uh, people with leprosy in those days, people would just flee. Um, Jesus is coming down the hill and out pops a man with leprosy. Would have been obvious. His body would have been scarred. His limbs would have been deteriorating. He wouldn't have been able to speak very well. Oftentimes it would affect their tongue and they could just sort of gargle out some words. It was a terrible disease. And so this man, best he can, cries out to Jesus, make me clean. And everybody is looking, what will Jesus do? Because here's a man, if there was ever a person that was not eligible for the love and the forgiveness and the comfort of God, it was this man. What is Jesus going to do? And it says in verse 3, reaching out his hand. You would have been able to hear a pin drop when this happened. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You know, leprosy in the Bible was a real disease, but it represents sin. And it represents the most awful parts of sin. Leprosy brought pain and anguish. Sin brings pain and anguish. Leprosy would disfigure the body and, and sin will disfigure us emotionally and spiritually and maybe other ways uh, leprosy would steal your ability to speak and oftentimes sin will limit our ability to relate with others or even to cry out to God. So, uh, leprosy would separate you from other people. If you had leprosy, you had to leave your family. You had to stay at a distance for the rest of your life and sin will separate you. And leprosy ended in death and sin ultimately will end in ultimate death and eternal death. And so Jesus is making a statement here. The first thing he does is he touches him 
And he is saying to this man and to all of us that no one has ever sinned so badly. No one has ever rebelled so long that God's not willing to touch you and to show his love and his kindness to you. When he put his hand on that leprous man, Jesus was saying, there are no untouchables. There is not a person here today that Jesus doesn't want to reach out and show you his love. Nobody's gone too far, sinned too often, confessed too often. There's nobody for whom God is tired of you. There's no one who's too broken. But then it says, after he touched him, Jesus says, I am willing. I'm willing. Jesus didn't have to decide. Jesus had already decided. And listen, church, Jesus doesn't have to decide about you. There was a time in the garden before Jesus was crucified. The night before he was crucified, and Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup, let this crucifixion be taken away from me. But if there's not, I'm going to do it because I've decided I want to make it possible that people can be forgiven. Jesus says, I am willing. He has decided to forgive those who call upon him, and he is delighted to do so. And Jesus said, be made clean. Jesus isn't just willing to do it. Jesus is able to forgive us because he shed his blood for our sins. And then the last thing it says is immediately his leprosy was gone. I am. Uh, in all of our talks, me and Jacoby and April, uh, some really good talks, some really good afternoons, just talking about the Bible and theology and Jesus. Um, one of the things that uh, both of them said, but I, the words as they, as they come to my mind were, were, were the things that April said just about how wonderful it is that the forgiveness of Jesus, that it, and these are my words, I'm summarizing what she said better than I could say it, I'm sure. But she said, you know, that his forgiveness is, is, is complete and it is sufficient and it is now. She said, the simplicity of Jesus, that's a phrase she said often. I, when I thought about this word immediately, I, I was reminded that there's no trial period. Have you ever, I remember, I remember getting a job as a teenager one time and, and I got hired on for this uh, employment and they said, but you know, there's a trial period. <laughs> you know, we're going to see how well you do. Listen, Jesus said immediately, there's no trial period. There's no list of prerequisites. There's no payment plan. It's the love of God. Jesus reached out and touched him, said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately he was. This message is filled with do this and don't do that. Matthew 5, 6, 7, great sermon. But here's what I want you to see today. That the biggest message in the message is that you need Jesus. And he is our only hope for salvation. Head bowed, eyes closed, let me pray. Father, I pray today 
as we have sought to be faithful, to lift you high, that you just, your Holy Spirit is the teacher. You draw people to you. May you be honored in our lives. And I pray today that people will trust you, trust you, you alone for their salvation, that they'll let this church help them in their spiritual walk. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.